Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. have done this message before, but I haven't done this message before. I have went through Matthew chapters 1 and 2, talked about the prophecies that are referenced by Matthew, some of them direct quotes from the Old Testament that Matthew gives us regarding the birth of Christ. But one of the things that I've never really done, and this especially true in the first two that we're going to look at today is to kind of look at the backstory of what was going on in Israel or Jerusalem at the time of the giving of these prophecies. And uh, the sixth prophecy, we cannot locate. I had Melissa text and call me, uh, Mike doing the overhead text, and it's like point three, that question mark. What do you want me to do with that? And so I see that it may be confusing to you, but on point three, Matthew tells us concerning Jesus being called a Nazarene as spoken by the prophets, plural, but he does not tell us or identify any of the prophets, nor can we search out the Old Testament and find where it says he shall be called a Nazarene. That's the question mark. Matthew said it, and he used the Old Testament prophets as his support for Jesus being called a Nazarene, our third point, but can't find a direct quote like we can in like with Isaiah talking about the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, or Micah talking about the birthplace of the one to be born ruler, that of Bethlehem in Micah 5.2, or the out of Egypt prophecy that we're going to look at as we start this morning from Hosea 11.1, and then Jeremiah's weeping and lamentation prophecy that comes from Jeremiah 31.15. These are quotes that he gives us from the Old Testament, and yet when we come to that final one, we can't find that in the Old Testament, and so we'll deal with that when we get to the third point this morning, but since this is a part two of the message, there are six prophecies. One that was descriptive, referring to a star. We began with that a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at this with a pagan prophet named Balaam who spoke about the star and the scepter from Numbers 24:17, And then I just listed out the remainder of these six prophecies that Matthew either described or directly quoted or made a reference to. And in five of them, since the sixth one, and that this is my point that I was getting to that question mark on number six, or our point today, number three, is that the other five... Israel was going through some very difficult and troubling times. In every one of those prophecies, their nation was in trouble. And in the midst of a very difficult and troubling time, God spoke a word about the coming Messiah to give them a future and a hope. And I think at times, and maybe individually, and certainly as a nation, we see uh, struggles going on in this nation that we live in. We see struggles going on in our world today. Uh, two major conflicts happening in the world today. And the talk of some saying already has begun or others saying we're in the prelude of World War III. That would be troubling times. But we don't even have to go to uh, the world war aspect of this to know that our nation is struggling. Lily and I 
went to a Christmas concert last night, as I had already spoken of, and uh, we went to get a bite to eat before, and I've been trying to get some things done around the house and been very uh, busy, and I think, let's get a burger. And so we went to a burger restaurant that we have often gone to, and we walked in the door, we looked up at the prices, and I said, I can't do it. And I turned around and walked out again. It's like, okay, they taste decently, but they're not that good. It wasn't a $10 burger that we were purchasing, but they were going to charge $10, and that was the baby burger. I don't even get the man-sized burger anymore because I'm old. If I was a brick mason and still working laying brick, I'd be eating two of those man-sized burgers, but... That would have cost me about uh, 25 bucks for two burgers, and that, again, I can't do it. So we see the struggle that's going on, and in the midst of struggle, God wants to give us a hope. In our last study, we looked at the passages from the Old Testament and gave the backgrounds to these great messianic prophecies. We're going to continue to do that, looking at three more prophecies today. Our first point is out of Egypt from Hosea 11.1 and also found in Matthew 2.15. Our second point, weeping and lamentation from Jeremiah 31.15, also found in Matthew 2.18. And as I mentioned, called a Nazarene. We don't have an address for this in the Old Testament, but Matthew refers to it, so he knew something in Matthew 2.23. We'll get to that at the close of the message. So out of Egypt, coming from Hosea 11.1. And I want to begin looking at the backstory from Hosea chapter 11. Just a little rehearsing. Hosea is actually the name that uh, Joshua had. Moses changed Joshua's name from Hosea to Joshua. And uh, Hosea means salvation. Joshua means God is salvation. So Moses did a name change for Joshua, but Hosea, his name meaning salvation, he prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And this puts him in the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes that divided after the reign of Solomon. All of their kings were evil kings, and all of the kings were referred back to King Jeroboam I, And here we have the namesake of King Jeroboam, King Jeroboam II. He was not a descendant of King Jeroboam, but um, he was a namesake of him. And he reigned for 41 years. He was a bad king, and he reigned for 41 years. Just think about this. In our country, that if presidents were like forever presidents until they died and then they passed on, they're presidency to their son and you got a bad one sometimes we get a bad one and we think i can't wait till four years is up can't wait can't wait four years we're going to make a correction but here king jeroboam too the bible tells us that he ruled over israel and he was evil just as king jeroboam one was and yet he for 41 years ruled over israel And at that time, not only was Hosea, Jonah, Amos, they were prophets in the northern kingdom. And Isaiah and Micah also, uh, toward the end of Jeroboam's reign, they were prophesying in the southern kingdom. So God's word was going forth. And uh, God was speaking truth into the nations of both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. And the people were not listening. But God's word was going forth at that time. We looked at on Wednesday as we were closing out in Deuteronomy that God said, I sent the prophets. And yet you went further and further away from me. He gives warning and yet they're further and further away. So the Bible teaches in 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27 that Jeroboam, Like all the other kingdoms, as I'd mentioned, of the northern kingdom, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet God looked upon the affliction of Israel 
and seeing that there was no helper for them, not wanting to blot out their name under the heavens, he sent prophets to prophesy of Israel's future restoration. So God was telling them things are going to get better, but it's not now. Even though the northern kingdom of Israel was in full rebellion against the Lord, God through the prophets continued to reach out to his children, reminding them of his love for them when he called them out of Egypt. And God had brought the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, something that every Israeli knew. They were taught this from childhood. And this was hundreds of years after the children of Israel came out of Egypt. They'd been in the promised land for hundreds of year at this, years at this point. And now God gives Israel his perspective. In Hosea 11.1, 1, this is God's perspective. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I have called my child or my son. So God called Israel out of Egypt. He viewed them as a child and then also loved them, called them his son. And we can find this in Moses' writings, talking about the love of God and calling Israel his son. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, speaking about God's love, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples or all nations but the lord loves you because he would keep the oath that he swore to your fathers the lord has brought you out with a mighty hand redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of pharaoh the king of egypt and speaking about being called a son Exodus 4, 22 and 23, when Moses and Aaron stood before the Pharaoh, God instructed Moses saying, this is what you are to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel, my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve you or serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So that was God's perspective. Hosea 11.1 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now I'd mentioned earlier that we talked about this on Wednesday and all the scripture rolling around in my head from Wednesday to Sunday. We're going to talk about it right now. This is what I was trying to refer to it wasn't on Wednesday it's right now Hosea 11:2 this is Israel's response as they called them so they went from them they sacrificed to the baals and burned incense to carved images so as they called them as the prophets called the nation of Israel the nation of Israel went away from the prophets the word of God to sacrifice to the baals to burn incense to the carved images. So we see in these two verses, we have God's perspective. Israel was a child. God loved them. He called them his son, called them out of Egypt. But Israel, as they strayed away from the Lord, the Lord sent prophets to speak truth to them once again, to give Israel God's word. But the people went away from the prophets. They sacrificed to false gods and burned incense to carved images. And we find in 2 Kings 17, 13 and 14, Yet the Lord testified against Israel, against Judah, by all his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your father, which I sent to you, my servant, by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear. They stiffened their necks like necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. Now, this year, I learned what it means to have a stick, stiff neck. And uh, I got to tell you, it's not good. I wouldn't 
suggest anybody go the path that I went with breaking my C2 vertebrae or fracturing it and then bulging uh, C4 and C5. I, I know a stiff neck and the pain is very great, although it took about 24 hours for the pain to really settle in. It took about that long for me to say, all right, it's time to go to the emergency room. Something's not right. Even though when I fell and the first thought I had is, great, I just broke my neck. I knew I had done it, but I'm stubborn. So I know stiff neck. I'm stubborn. I know it two ways, (laughs) the spiritual and the physical. And God... He sent his prophets. To this day, God sends his evangelists. He sends his preachers. He has the word. He has, uh, he uses social media. He uses commercials. He uses many different means by which he is able to present the word, to speak truth to the people. And we live in a nation where we see that we're much like Israel was at that time. The more the prophets speak, The more the prophets say, turn from your evil ways, we're at a point now in our nation is that evil is being called good and good is being called evil. They're going further and further away. Their necks are getting stiffer and stiffer. They do not believe the Lord our God. So God viewed his relationship with Israel also as a marriage. We see this in Hosea. And, you know, we're not doing a study of the book of Hosea today, but It is interesting that God used Hosea's life, his marriage, as an example of the children of Israel who had been unfaithful to the Lord multiple times, had committed adultery against God. God viewed Israel as his bride, and they had committed adultery against him with pagan God's in Isaiah 54, 5, it tells us, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Your maker is your husband. And then again in Jeremiah 31, 31 and 30 through 33, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That time hasn't come yet. It still hasn't come. But Israel, their unfaithfulness to the Lord was displayed through the prophet and the wife whom God commanded Hosea in Hosea 1, 2. He said, go take a wife of harlotry and the children of the harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so Hosea was obedient to God's command. God said to Hosea, go find a prostitute, marry her. And then they had three children, two sons and a daughter. And each of the names... This isn't a study in Hosea. I didn't go into the names, but each of the names of the children has significance for Israel of that day. And then after having three children, she left him, found a lover, and then God said to Hosea, chapter 3, verse 1, Go again, love the woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to the other gods, who love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So again, God said, now go get her. In fact, he was obedient. He had to buy her back for 15 shekels of silver and some barley. He purchased his wife back. God said, love her just like I love the children of Israel who have and are committing this harlotry repeatedly against me. So that is the back story of this prophecy from Hosea 11.1. It was a 
horrible time. They would go into captivity ultimately. But God had his prophets there declaring the word of God. And God was declaring, I love you. And the people were not heeding the love of God, nor the command of God. So we come to Matthew. We find the connection with the birth of Christ. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Out of Egypt I have called my son. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. I've mentioned this probably every Christmas for the last 24 years. Actually, this will be my 25th because I became your pastor in June. Uh, 1999. So this is the 25th Christmas that I've been doing Christmas messages. And I probably always mentioned with Joseph, it was always in dreams that he would hear from the Lord. Always an angel in a dream. He'd hear the word of the Lord. Sometimes the angel would back it up with scripture. Matthew gives us the scripture here from Hosea 11, 1. But he always spoke to Joseph in dreams. And he had said to him to flee. And this is a Greek word that means to run away, to vanish, to flee. And it's where we get the word fugitive from. So we get the base word of fugitive. Fugo is the Greek word. And so they are becoming fugitives in a foreign land in Egypt because of the great danger that was upon Joseph and his family at this time. And Joseph was obedient to the angel's command. Joseph fled from Egypt with Mary and the Christ child until the angel would come to him once again in a dream and say, it's good, you can come back, it's safe, Herod is dead. And so he was following the instructions given to him by the Lord through an angel in his dreams. That had to be something. Because he had a dream to tell him, it's okay to take Mary to be your wife. This is what's going on, Joseph. So he understood that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit and that the child to be born of her was to be Christ the Lord and that he was to name him Jesus. And then he had a dream that he had to flee from Egypt. Then he had a dream it was time to come back to Israel. Then he had a dream to head over to Nazareth. So I just imagine every morning Mary would think, what you dream about? Any word from the Lord tonight? And that's interesting in the sense that Mary had this appearance by Gabriel, and as far as we know, only once an angel came to her, and quite a significant angel, because only two angels uh, of the Lord, Lucifer's there in that classification, but he walked away from God, and he we know him as Satan, but only two angels that we know by name in favor of the Lord. We have Michael over the uh, the prince, over the children of Israel, and Gabriel every time. He appears on the scene, whether you're looking from Daniel or in the New Testament. He's always talking about either the first and second coming of Jesus. It seemed like it was his job to announce Jesus' coming. So as far as we know, Mary only had this one appearance. And yet Joseph at least three or four times, God spoke to him, directed them in how he should care for his young family. So we're not sure how long they spent in Egypt. It is interesting, though, historically, they look back at the time when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. He developed a sanctuary for the Jews, developed a city, Alexandria, there in Egypt, and it became a sanctuary for the Jews in Philo, a Jewish historian said by the year 40 A.D. that there was some million Jews living in Alexandria and Egypt. So it's quite possible, 40 A.D., I mean, this is just 
in the timing of our scripture, only around 30 years um, earlier, and to have a million people living in that area, it's quite possible that they had family there. They had a place to go. And yet, the significance really isn't about where they went, the fact that they had family there, but the fact that they went to Egypt and that the Christ child's flight to Egypt was mimicking the flight that the Jewish people had when they went to Egypt and stayed there and remained for over 400 years because of struggling times of a famine that drove them to Egypt, but then becoming enslaved and enslaved in Egypt. It shows us that Jesus traveled the same path of those he would redeem. In the Bible, Egypt is seen as a type of the world where the children of Israel were held in bondage for over 400 years, from which they were redeemed by God. And before we came to Christ, we, like Egypt, were slaves to sin, according to Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked, Paul says, that though you were slaves in sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Though we were slaves of sin, we have been delivered. Jesus came to redeem us from the bondage of this sin-fallen world, Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And once redeemed, we have been sanctified through the truth of God's word. As Jesus prayed in the great priestly prayer of John 17 in verses 16 through 19, Jesus prayed, They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So I see this morning in our first point, being called out of Egypt, that Jesus traveled the same path of those whom he redeemed. Secondly, we have the weeping and lamentation from Jeremiah 31:15, also found in Matthew 2:18. But beginning in Jeremiah, from weeping and tears to hope. If you read Jeremiah 31, it speaks about this difficulty, yes, the weeping and the tears, but it also speaks about hope. So let's pick up Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17. It says, this is verse 15, the direct quote, a voice was heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they were no more. And then it continues to say, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is a hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children will come back to their own borders. They were weeping. There was lamentation. But God says, there is a hope for your future. But he also said, you're going to come back from the land of the enemy, which meant you're going to go into captivity. But there's a hope for your future. Now, Jeremiah was born in the priestly line, but he never became a priest. As he was called at a young age, some believe at the age of 17, to be a prophet of God. Can you imagine that? 17-year-old, thus says the Lord God of Israel. You think, yeah, right, kid. And he was young. And God told him right off the bat that they're not going to listen to you. But I will be with you. So believed to be in his late teens or early 20s and Believed also to prophesy in the nation for around 40 years, not sure about his death. He did go off into captivity into Egypt at one point uh, with those who fled to Egypt. And uh, tradition says that he was um, assassinated there, but that's tradition. The Bible is silent as the end of Jeremiah's 
life. But early on, in Jeremiah 1, 9 and 10, it says, Behold, I have put my word in your mouth. See, I have, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Man, that's a big word to put upon a 17-year-old, to know his call that early in his life. And what a great call that God gave him. Not just a prophet for Israel, but he said, I've set you over the nations, over the kingdoms. And although the Bible is silent regarding his death, possibly prophesying for a period of around 40 years. Jeremiah began his ministry at the end of good King Josiah's reign, Josiah from the southern kingdom of Israel, of Judah. And this area of Ramah is a town in Bethlehem, or Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, about five miles north of Jerusalem. It's a traditional site of Rachel's tomb. And Rachel, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, the grandmother of Ephraim and Manasseh, and sometimes Ephraim, speaking of the whole nation of Israel, especially the ten northern tribes. And here depicted as Rachel weeping over her children, the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh, the ten northern tribes. And they're being carried away in captivity in 722 B.C. That's what would take place then, at the time of Jeremiah's prophecy, historically, Jeremiah prophesied, as I said, at the toward the end of King Josiah's reign, and Israel had already gone into captivity in 722 B.C. Judah would go into captivity of Babylon in 586 B.C., and yet God assures them of his love toward them. He said in Jeremiah 31.3, my love for you is everlasting. And he promised them that I will restore a remnant back to Israel, back into the land. He said in Jeremiah 31.17, there is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children will come back to their own border. Right now we live in a nation where it seems that Our youth, in fact, statistically and polls are showing that our youth are falling away from the church, falling away from God. And we need such a hope in this land that your children shall come back to their own border, come back to their senses, come back to know. And here's the thing that I've often thought about the Jesus movement uh, that we came out of, of the Calvary Chapel movement. And uh, I was kind of on the very tail end of that because I was just a a young boy just becoming a a preteen and early teenager during the heart of the Jesus movement. But um, even here in Illinois, northern Illinois, I was hearing about the things that was going on. I had my good news Bible that came out of that time. And I remember even uh, going into the neighborhoods of Winthrop Harbor, Illinois, and wanting to share Christ with others and going door to door as a young boy, something that nobody, except the Jehovah's Witness, but they do it by letter now. COVID's kind of changed their method a little bit. And uh, we even got one of their letters two weeks ago here at the church. Uh, they didn't they didn't know that the folks at 38451 North Fairfield Road was a congregation because originally I thought, well, I'm going to write you guys back. Maybe I should still write them back and say, you invited our church to your kingdom hall. How about your kingdom hall come to our church? <laughs> but we need that hope for our children today. Here's the thing. Back in the Jesus Movement Day, Many of those youth had been raised in church. So they were coming back in a sense of something, a foundation that they had had. Today, many of our youth, they have no idea. They have not been raised in church. They don't know Christ. So we're not going to have that kind of Jesus revolution repeated. But that doesn't necessarily discourage me because... When I look at the book of Acts and the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, 
when Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla, they mostly ministered to people who had no gospel foundation. They were not Jewish. They were Greeks, Gentiles coming to the faith in Jesus Christ. They had no such foundation, yet the Spirit of God still worked, still moved upon their heart and turned their world upside down. And we need our world turned upside down once again. I thought I should get an amen out of that. <laughs> Although the children of Israel faced 70 years of captivity, here's just kind of compiling a little bit of God's reassurance to Israel from Jeremiah 31. God assured them that they would be his people in verse 1. Find his grace and rest in verse 2. Know his love and loving kindness in verse 3. That their nation would be built again and that they would be called the virgin of Israel in verse 4. Moreover, through God, though God would scatter them, he would gather them as a shepherd does his flock. In verse 10, the Lord would redeem and ransom them in verse 11, causing them to sing and sorrow no more in verse 12. Although they would weep now and refuse to be comforted because of the great calamity that would befall their nation in verse 15, one day they would receive their reward in verse 16. And the Lord gave them hope regarding his future work toward their nation in verse 17. We all probably love this passage from Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. And it says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you says the Lord, I will bring you back from the captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to the place from which I had caused you to be carried away captive. God says, to give you peace, to give you a future and a hope. But at this time, Matthew in Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18, we find that there was lamentation, there was weeping, there was great mourning. It tells us, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its districts. Everyone from two years old and under, according to the time that was determined by the wise men. Then it was fulfilled, which is spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Here's the quote, Jeremiah 31:15, but quoted here in Matthew 2:18. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The slaughter of all the male babies from two years old and under. That's horrific time. It may teach us that Jesus was a toddler by the time that the Magi showed up. Another lesson for another day. But the scripture does tell us when the Magi came to Jesus that they came to the house where Mary and Joseph was. Didn't speak about them coming to the manger by this time. And the time period kind of gives us the idea that some time had passed. Rachel's tomb near Bethlehem. Rachel considered to be the mother of the nation. In many ways, weeping over their children and these horrific murders. It's not surprising. Herod killed some of he, Herod killed his favorite wife. I don't know if you want to be a favorite in Herod's household. He got jealous of not only her, but killed at least three of his own sons. He was jealous for the throne that he had, and partly because he didn't have a right from the Jewish perspective. He was an Edomite. 
He was not a descendant of David. He was not even Jewish. So in his mind, he had a right to protect the throne that did not rightly belong to him. So it was no problem for him to kill the babies of people he didn't even know. Because, again, he had killed his favorite wife and killed some of his own children. It was even said that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's household than to be one of his own kin. And yet all this came in fulfillment of prophecy. We see the hardness, the impenitent hearts of fallen man who reject God's provision for salvation. And we've seen that recently in Israel as well on October 7th. And if you've seen any of those clips of what Hamas did to the Israelis when over 1,400 were murdered and some kidnapped and the raping that took place and just the horrific every time I see some of those clips, I get angry. And I think rightfully so. And it's the same thing is true today. It is the hardness and impenitent hearts of fallen man who rejects God's plan for salvation. They attempt to destroy the hope of salvation, but they cannot succeed. And Satan often has tried ever since the beginning, ever since that first gospel was proclaimed by God in Genesis 3.15 that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I actually like the NIV version of this Genesis 3.15 better, but then I had to go to school and learn a little bit of the Hebrew and look into the wording, and uh, the same word is used, and that's why the New King James says bruise twice, because it's the same Hebrew word. In the NIV, they read it this way, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So in a sense, Satan, you're going to nip at Jesus' heel, but he's going to stomp on you. But the Hebrew doesn't really say that, so I may like it better that way, the crushing part of it. But the Hebrew is the same Hebrew word, bruise and bruise. But it does, you get that sense of uh, being under the authority of. I mean, if I, we get to the book of Joshua, we're going to start that in the midweek, in the new year, and there'll be a point to where five kings will be taken, five kings, I put four fingers up, five kings will be taken from, uh, by Israel in a single battle, and the kings will run and hide in the cave, and Joshua will have a big stone put in front of the cave, and he said, we're not done fighting yet, just a guard set before that cave. Let's finish the battle. And then he would bring all of Israel back. And he would bring out the five kings, have them lay down, and have all the men of Israel come and put their foot on the neck of the kings and say, so will be all your enemies that you face from here on out. So to have that authority over, that's the sense of this. But Satan has always tried to thwart the plan of God. And thankfully, Jesus has already run the battle for us. And we may face some of the war that continues on until the Lord returns a second time. But we need to know where we're going to stand. We need to know in John 1, 4, 4, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And Satan will never thwart the plan of God's redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. And finally, called a Nazarene. I can't give you an Old Testament address. We'll look at that in a moment. But we do find it in Matthew 2.23. So Matthew says, which was spoken of by the prophets. Up to this time, in chapters 1 and 2, Matthew gives us five prophets connected to the birth of Jesus. Uh, he begins with the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 7:14, he speaks of the star and the scepter prophecy of Balaam in Numbers 
17. Now, he doesn't actually quote anything from Balaam, but he does say his star. We have seen his star. And so this ties back to number 24, 17. He speaks the third prophecy of the one who would be ruler, where Micah told of the Messiah being born of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Micah 5, 2, the fourth prophecy called out of Egypt. My son, he would be called my son from Hosea 11.1. 1, and the weeping and lamentation of Jeremiah, we just looked at Jeremiah 31.15. This last prophetic reference, uh, it doesn't refer to a single prophet. I found that interesting. He said it's spoken of by the prophets, kind of a general sense of the prophets of the Old Testament. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew's reference to the prophets here makes it seem that we should easily. It's spoken of by the prophets. Which one? Let's go find it in the Old Testament. But Net Bible says this of this prophecy, judging by the difficulty of finding the Old Testament quotations, the plural form of the prophets to match the wording here, it appears that the author was using a current expression of scorn that conceptually, but not verbally, found its roots in the Old Testament. That's a possibility. New Bible Commentary said Nazarene is not a quotation of a specific text, but a general reference to the prophets, but probably summed up the prophetic theme of a humble, despised Messiah, kind of saying a similar thing. So we go to the passage in Matthew 2, 21 through 23. Then he arose and he took the young child and his mother and he came into the land of Israel. But when he heard of Archelaus was ruling or reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside to the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in the city of Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. The city of Nazareth, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, it's never mentioned. So you can't even look in the Old Testament and find the city of Nazareth mentioned there. Nathaniel, when Philip came to find him and said, we have found the Messiah, the one whom Moses spoke about, Nathaniel responded, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that speaks about the scorn that they had toward those who came out of Nazareth. Yet Jesus was going to be called a Nazarene. The sixth prophecy comes with Joseph being directed by an angel to return to Israel, and then again being directed by an angel, always in a dream, to not go to Bethlehem. They ended up settling in Nazareth. Ever since Matthew wrote that, it might be fulfilled by the prophets. The theologians have searched the pages of the Old Testament looking for two or more prophets who have declared this truth, but not being able to find it. Some, even current theologians, trying to say that the word Nazareth is close to the word in Hebrew for branch, Nazir, and so it's just kind of a taken from that Hebrew word branch, Nazir. But I don't know. That's kind of stretching it for me. I, I don't quite go there. There are some things that I'm fine with in the Bible. I can't figure it out. I can't find the answer. I trust God. There's a lot of things in Scripture. It's like, man, I, I don't get that. And it could be years later that, oh, I understand that. It might take several years to understand something, but I'm good at this point in my life just to, I'll trust your word, what it says. I may not understand everything that's being said. I might not be able to connect all the dots yet, but I'm good to rest in the word of God. And we do know that he was called a Nazarene in Matthew 26, 71. And they had gone out of the gateway. Another girl saw him and said... To those who were there, speaking to Peter, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And when Philip found Nathanael in John 1.45, he said, We have found him whom Moses and the law 
wrote about, and also the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Jesus being called a Nazarene came in fulfillment of the prophets of God. That's all we have to trust. We may not be able to understand that particular one, but it came in fulfillment of the prophets of God. Except for the Nazarene prophecy, that's difficult for us to place. Each of these prophecies came at a difficult time for the nation of Israel. And yet God, in their hardship, was speaking to them prophetic truths of the coming Messiah. And we've looked at these over the last two studies. We've looked at these six prophecies that were fulfilled through the birth and the early childhood of Jesus, prophecies that originally came at very troubling times for Israel, sometimes disastrous times that was actually caused by the children of Israel. They were at fault, they were the cause of it, and yet God assured them of his love for them and of the coming Messiah. It's important for us to realize that Another thing that I've noted of this, some people have looked back at the Bible and they look at Jesus in fulfillment of prophecies. And by the way, there's 330 that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. And some people look back and it's like, yeah, well, Jesus just kind of made, arranged things to make it look like he was fulfillment of these things. Well, he was a baby. He couldn't really arrange anything. Oh, mommy, we're supposed to go to... No, it was out of his control. <laughs> totally out of his hand. God was working through others. And yet prophecy was being fulfilled. Jesus was too young to aid in their fulfillment, showing that it was solely the work of the Heavenly Father who working through the prophets, through angels, through believers, through unbelievers, who lived either many years before or during the time of the birth of Christ or his early childhood. God was working. And these prophetic proofs, well, are we able to take these and are we able to be wise enough to seek he who has been born king of the Jews, who grew and died on the cross to set us free. Father, we thank you for your word and for what you have instructed us from your word in this Christmas account of Jesus' coming from Matthew's gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to your church to this day in troubling times. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to hear what you would have to say to your church this day. So we close out in this last song of worship. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.